Podcasting, The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings, and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. I'm your host, Gene Hendricks, and while we do have a great episode for you today, I need to get a couple things out of the way first. Now, you'll notice that the podcast has been silent for the past few months, and there are a few reasons for this. Um, The first reason I detailed on the Hammer Strikes, that my wife got a job after a while of looking. Well, that job went on for a few months and then fell through, and now she has another job with more hours, closer to home, etc. So it's, it's not bad. However, I do have a limited amount of time to do podcasting. In fact, as I am recording this now, it is 6 a.m. on a Saturday, because that's when I can fit it in. So, things tend to get a little complex. Uh, I think I have a plan of what I'm going to be doing in the coming year. More on that as episodes come out. But it was just kind of tough to get podcasting done. Now, the second reason for this, and this occurred about a month ago as I record this was the the two true freaks network specifically and podcasting as a whole lost a great man and that was Sean Engel who passed away suddenly on December 16th now most of us on two true freaks uh, that did not have set weekly shows hey this has to come out at this point decided to do a really, for lack of a better term, a podcasting moment of silence for Sean. And while I was planning on getting this particular episode out by the end of last year, that moment of silence basically told me, no, don't do that. So you are now hearing it in January rather than December. Now, moving forward, like I said, I have a general idea of what I'm doing. I have an overall theme for the year. Uh, One of the episodes would be celebrating Star Trek's 50th anniversary, which happens to be in September. So I'm going to be doing at least one episode with that. I'm planning on having some guests on for those. I also have an, an overall theme for the year as far as the kinds of stories I'm trying to cover, both in film, TV, comics, etc., And I want to wait until those are produced a little more before we get into it. And then there's Legends of Superheroes, which I'll slot in when I can. I have uh, two already lined up to be recorded. They have not been recorded at this point. I mean, I'm not Travis Magnus or anything. So, I think we're going to be pretty good for 2016, but time will tell. Now, on another note, we have email. Three emails, well, I'm sorry, uh, two emails and dissertation, and all three of these deal with the theme songs, and I was really happy with the reception I got for that episode, and I am planning on doing a second one, maybe this year? I don't know, it depends on how things work out, so we'll see. Now, our first email comes from Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast and the Power Records podcast. The title of his email is, The Theme Songs Strike. And he writes, Hi, Gene. Loved your coattail writing episode focusing on cartoon themes. I can't get enough of these, as I told Andy over at Hey Kids. 
They not only serve as a podcast, but as a playlist for a boring workday. Now I have to figure out an angle for doing my own version over at Supermates. Hmm. Well, Chris, you could always do theme songs of failed 70s superhero TV shows. Get the Red Brown and Kathleen Crosby themes in there at the very least. Of course, the 60s Spider-Man theme is perfection, and to my mind is to Spidey what the John Williams theme is to Superman. Amazing Friends is a lot of fun, and by hearing the theme, I also hear the repetitive music they played over and over in many of the early Marvel productions of the time. The A's Hulk theme is far superior to the 90s version, and does a good job of encapsulating the comic book version of the character. Still puzzled by those reappearing clothes on Banner, and Rick Jones as a blonde cowboy, though. You'll get no complaints from me about using the G.I. Joe the movie theme. Nothing quite gives me the rush of being 8 to 12 years old like the Joe theme, and this is the best version, hands down. The opening sequence of that film was the best part of an otherwise very frustrating film. Cobra La, really? And I watch it on YouTube from time to time, just for old time's sake. It's the perfect slice of G.I. Joe, in my opinion. A little surprise, the Super Friends, Transformers, and Mask themes weren't represented, but that's what sequels are for. Great show as always, Chris. Yeah, I had to pare down the list just so I didn't have a huge, unwieldy episode, and I will be coming back to the theme songs, as I said, and I have a list of suggestions that people have already given me. Those three are definitely on the list, thank you, Chris, but we have some from other people, and if you would like to send me suggestions, please feel free and either contact me on Facebook, or you can... Email me, gene, at thehammerstrikes.com, and let me know what you would like to hear. I already have enough themes, I believe, for at least two more episodes on the list, so if you want to keep adding to that, go right ahead. Our next email comes from the awesome Mr. Tom Panarese of Pop Culture Affidavit and In Country, which covers the Marvel comic series The Nom. The title of his email is Cartoon Theme Songs Episode. Gene. Welcome to the bandwagon. There's plenty of room. Uh, now, Tom did do a TV theme songs episode, but he also did a couple playlist episodes, and that was an uh, inspiration for mine. He continues. In all seriousness, I wanted to write in and say that I thoroughly enjoyed your cartoon theme songs episode. You had a couple of themes that I would definitely put on that list, but most of them were ones that I either hadn't heard in years or hadn't heard at all. To this day, I've never seen an episode of the Hulk cartoon because... I had been scared of the live-action TV show when I was a kid, and even though I knew the Silverhawks existed when I was a kid, I completely missed the show, despite the fact that I was a huge Thundercats fan. But that's the fun of episodes like this. You hear stuff that you would have never expected. Thanks for a great listen. I'm looking forward to the next time you do an episode like this. All the best, Tom. Oh, thank you, Tom. Yeah, the, the Hulk cartoon, that was one of those that I always loved as a kid. Now... Listeners of this show know that I love the Lou Ferrigno, Bill Bixby show. That's one of the things that I grew up with. And that also led to my first comic book, which was The Incredible Hulk. And from that comic book is where I got into the cartoon, where you had Bruce Banner working as a scientist on Gamma Base, dating Betty, having Rick Jones be the cause for becoming the Hulk. And... It's interesting, though, as Chris said with the repetitive music, the Marvel productions also had repetitive sound effects to the point where we, as a family, were watching the original G.I. Joe miniseries the other day. 
And this miniseries had Duke get captured by Cobra, and he had to fight this giant slave. And it's funny because the slave was doing the growls like the Hulk. And Duke, you may not know, was the same voice actor did him and Bruce Banner. So you had Bruce Banner fighting the Hulk in an episode of G.I. Joe. I just found that amusing. Now, we have a very long email, and this comes from the infamous Mr. Luke Giaconetti. He of Earth Destruction Directive, and I'm not going to even go into the number of different things he's guest starred on, etc. The subject of his email is cartoon themes. Somebody get me my breakfast cereal. And he writes, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine. Hey dude, welcome to the TV theme song podcasting club. Woo woo woo, you know it. And he actually has a paragraph on every single theme I did. Okay, I'm going to uh, briefly go through this, but you know, we'll, we'll touch on each one. First up, Spider-Man, a classic. So corny and earnest. It's a wonderful bit of nostalgia with a couple of lyrics which are very insightful. Welcome fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward has been one that has stuck with me quite a bit over the years. Oh, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah, as Chris said, it is to Spider-Man what John the John Williams theme is to Superman. Once you hear it, really no other Spider-Man theme is going to measure up. To the point where they actually had it in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. At least the first movie. I don't know if they had it beyond that. I I haven't seen them in so long, I don't remember. Next up, the new Scooby-Doo movies. As big a Hanna-Barbera fan as I am, I will always applaud the inclusion of Scooby-Doo. This version of the opening and song, or a close approximation of it, is the one I remember most from my childhood, as I think it was used in syndicated reruns of all versions of Scooby-Doo in my neck of the woods. It is certainly much better than the later ones, including Hang Around with Scooby-Doo. I don't remember Hang Around with Scooby-Doo, or I am purposely blocking it out mentally. Whatever. Next, we go to Spider-Man as Amazing Friends. He says, a mainstay of my childhood, being born in 1980. Yeah, I know you're younger than me. You, have to, you can stop rubbing it in now. This was my Spider-Man theme for many years, though I have to admit that the 90s theme has replaced it because I was actually reading Spider-Man during that period. Okay, I don't mind the 90s theme. But, as Chris said with the, the Hulk theme, that was kind of... It was a little, it was a step down, in my opinion, because when you hear the Amazing Friends theme and you hear the Hulk theme, you have this great musical thing that it gives you the flavor of what that show is. In the 90s, Spider-Man and the Hulk had theme songs that repeated the title. So it was, you know, electronic voice saying Spider-Man over and over, or... Somebody gutturally saying, Hulk! Hulk! So it was kind of strange, more than anything else. So I, I don't mind them, because the visuals are good, but the reason I didn't include them is because on their own, they don't make for compelling music. And that's kind of what I was going for with that, that episode. Speaking of the Hulk, Luke moves on to the Incredible Hulk. He says, yes, like you, this is my Hulk theme and always will be. I just used this in an episode of Earth Destruction Directive, for Hostess Ed. I don't know what else to say, except that for this theme, everything comes together perfectly. Obviously, I agree, otherwise I wouldn't have included it. And on to Thundercats, he says, So very 80s, a wonderful theme all around. 
One of those so intrinsically matched with the visuals that you can't help but picture them, especially the villainous portions of it. Yeah, well, it also helps that I was using the theme that I got off of YouTube, which was from the video, so you had Mumra doing his scream and etc. So, yeah, that's kind of cheating on my part, but I don't have these on CD, so what are you going to do? Next up is Silverhawks. He says, partly metal, partly real, because metal is not real, obviously. I like that this one had the connective tissue to Thundercats, but it's clearly its own thing at the same time. It has a great cosmic sound to it. Sounds like a space show should. Again, I love the guitar work that they were able to work into an actual character, Bluegrass. Playing the guitar is a bonus. Yeah, Bluegrass was an interesting character because, well, one, he was voiced by Larry Kenny, who is prolific. I mean, he's the same guy that did Lion-O and several voices throughout the years. But it's also quite interesting that Bluegrass, he was the pilot. You know, he, he flew their ship, and he had his own little ship that came off and was able to fly around. I actually had that toy, which was cool. But Bluegrass never had wings. In the show, he was never shown as having wings. So I don't know if he was the pilot because they never gave him wings, or he just never used it because he was the pilot. But whatever. And the guitar was his weapon as well. So, yeah, he played music, but he was also able to shoot energy blasts from it. Now, on to G.I. Joe, the movie. He says, F yeah! It's clearly a big-budget update of the theme in the same way that Lion did with the Transformers theme for Transformers the movie. The opening itself has been homaged in the toys with a Duke with the Jump and the American Flag and Cobra Commander with the Fang Glider and Bomb. The opening also features, I'm pretty sure, every Joe and Cobra character who had an animation model at this point. The end credits version of this song, which has no lyrics, is even better. To this day, I retain crystal clear memories of watching this on WPIX Channel 11 with my brother when it debuted. Now, I don't remember seeing this when it was when it first came on. I know I saw it on TV because I remember seeing it as the you know part one, part two, part three. You know the the mini series that they cut up into. What I have a crystal clear memory of though is getting the VHS tape because it was actually in this clamshell that you had to open to get to the tape, rather than just being in a slipcase like most other VHSs at the time. Anyway, on to Gargoyles, which no one else has mentioned so far. Odd. And he says, A great intro to a show which was a clear signal that Disney was ready to play with Fox Kids and later Kids WB on their own terms. A superlative show as well, but Disney had scored a string of hits on the Disney afternoon, so this is no surprise. The admittedly lighter fare of DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Tailspin, and Darkwing Duck all had amazing themes in their own right, but more in line with the funny animal adventures tone, of course. Gargoyles was also amusingly parodied on the WB show Freakazoid as The Lawn Gnomes. Now, I remember watching Freakazoid, and... That's something that I may come back to later, because that was just such a, a goofy, off-the-wall show. Yeah, I can see them parodying that, because it's so ripe for being parodied. However, like like I said on the show, you had... The theme song was great, but the story intersecting Shakespeare and myth and King Arthur and all... And for when it came out in, in the ni late 90s when I was in college, it it's like... Everything intersected, and Disney was writing this show. Hey, Gene, you're going to love this. Here you go. And it, I love, it was just an amazing show, 
that I really need to sit down and watch again, especially now that Kira is old enough that she will appreciate it. And he wraps up with Star Blazers. As I said on my appearance on Anime Freaks, this show was before my time. But this theme is still a great localization of the original version, and definitely suits the show very nicely. Great selections, Gene. Keep up the awesome work on the show, Luke. And he had a huge list of suggestions, which I put on my spreadsheet. And as I said, if you want to add to the spreadsheet, feel free to drop me a line. Just keep in mind, my criteria is it has to work on its own. It can't have the visuals be intrinsic that it you need the visuals to make sense. So I'm probably not going to be doing the 90s Hulk theme just because I don't want to force you to listen to Hulk, Hulk, continuously. All right, so that's all the email I've gotten. It's also going to be pretty much the time limit for the email section, etc. So we're going to take a very quick break because we have a long episode for you, and we'll be back with, you know, a voice to add a little bit of class to this show because, you know, an English accent adds class to everything, even a northern one, right? The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Welcome back. We got a special episode for you today, uh, not only for the subject matter we're talking about, but also for the gentleman that has lowered himself to join me on the show. And I'm talking about the co-host of Listen to the Prophets and the Fantastic Cast, the host of Palace of Glittering Delights, and hopefully the co-host of the reunion shows of Hey Kids Comics, Mr. Andrew Leyland. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm fine, thank you, Gene. It's not lowering to talk to you. <laughs> You have listened always to my a, shows, right? Always, I have listened to your shows. It's a pleasure to finally be on one. Well, I'm glad that we could actually make the time sync up because it... <laughs> it's only took us six months. Yeah, I, well, I had the idea in the beginning of the year. It's in the end of the year that we're actually doing it, so... <laughs> it, I've had longer distances between idea phase and actual being done, but yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> I got shows uh, out in the meantime. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we have to. Uh, we do have to fit this in around life. Yes. Uh, when when you have a family, that tends to take precedence. Yes, unfortunately. So what we are talking about is a Lee Majors show, and not that one. No, <laughs> we are not talking about the Six Million Dollar Man. In fact, when I think of Lee Majors, I don't think Six Million Dollar Man. I don't even think Mr. Farrah Fawcett. I think of the Fall Guy. Now, I know, Andy, you, you came to Majors during the $6 million man, correct? 
Yes. Okay. Yes, I, I was a big fan of the Six Million Dollar Man, which used to err on Thursday evenings at 7.30 on the ITV network, which meant that it clashed with the venerable Top of the Pops on BBC One. So I would always have to argue with my aunt, who's kind of like my sister I used to live with, who got to watch what. And we used to take it in turns. But obviously Top of the Pops is only half an hour. So I, I at least got to see half of, the, of uh, Six Mill every week. Uh, but more often than not, she would give in to me. Oh, that's nice. And I would get to watch Six Mill. My argument being Top of the Pops got reared, kind of, on Sunday afternoons on the radio. Whereas back then, you couldn't take the Six Million Dollar Man. Right. Yeah. Right. That's something I still have to try and get to my daughter. Yeah, the concept of, no, you can't just watch whatever you want whenever you want. It used to be you watched it when it was on, and that was it. You didn't have a choice. You didn't pause or fast-forward the commercials. You actually had to sit and watch the show. Yeah, you, you had to, uh, during the commercial break, I used to imagine that they stopped doing what they were doing and just had a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then came back on after the commercial break. Well, it actually used to be like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Live TV and everything. Now, what we are talking about is The Fall Guy, which premiered in November of 1981, uh, just about a month before my sixth birthday. And it lasts until May of 1986, so it was a decent run, you know, five seasons. And the basic concept is that Lee Majors plays stuntman Colt Seavers, and he has his own stunt company, the Fall Guy Stunts, and he's helped in this by his cousin, uh, Howie Munson, who is played by Douglas Barr. And Howie is one of those guys that never figured out what he wanted to do. He would do a month of courses in pre-med, and then he would switch over and do English Lit. And he, every episode is, oh yeah, I spent a week doing this. And so he has some idea of what's going on. And also Jody Banks, who was played by Heather Thomas. And whereas Howie was a stuntman training, Jody knew what was going on. Now, something I just accepted back then but don't quite get now is apparently, even though Colt Seavers is one of the premier stuntmen in Hollywood, he can't make enough money just doing that and has to be a bounty hunter part-time. But it's a Glenn A. Larson show, so you just go with it. And it ended up with a very interesting episodic television premise, because you would always have Colt doing a stunt in the beginning of the show, then they would call him with, oh, we need you to go hunt this person down, or, you know, go pick this person up, and then they would go through, there would be a complication, Colt have to do some kind of stunt during the bounty chase, and it ends in, uh, he gets paid, and everyone's happy. Now, when I was a kid, I loved watching this show, and I have no idea how I found it. It was just one of those things that was on. I don't know if my dad wanted to watch it or what, but it was one of those shows that if Fall Guy was on, I was in front of the television. Now, how did you find it, Andy? Did it just show up in rotation one time and, oh, I want to try this? Or did no, you know about no. it ahead of time? Um, I knew about it ahead of time. Cause, okay. uh, it, it got, it got, Lee Majors was, was spectacularly popular. Over here, I mean, like he was in the States, his marriage to Farrah Fawcett was very much the posh and becks of the day, wasn't it? It was they were the first tabloid couple mm -hmm. in many ways. And so a new show by Lee Majors were heard again on ITV. This one was on 7.30 on Friday evenings, which was quite a prime slot for American imports at the time. And it was trailered quite heavily. TV Times had an article on it 
the TV Times was the ITV version of the BBC's Radio Times, essentially TV Guide. Uh, back in the day, we used to have to buy two TV guides. We had to buy one for BBC and one for ITV. And then in the early 90s, I think they regulated it so both magazines could cover all the channels. So you only had to buy one. Oh. And they promoted it quite a lot. But there was also a kids version of TV Times called Lookin that was also published by the same people who did the TV Times. And they would promote ITV shows, but for kids. So the Fall Guy was featured quite heavily in that before it started airing. So they would have articles on Lee Majors and posters and pictures and, and interviews and all that stuff before the pilot episode aired. So it was trailered quite heavily. And because it was obviously Steve Austin in a new show, it was like, all right, I'll watch this. I'll give this a go. And uh, I promptly ended up watching it most every week with my nan for probably the first three or four years. By the fifth season, ITV were just burning it off you know, as, as scheduled filler, like they did with a lot of, of US imports. I do remember a couple of the fifth season episodes airing on a Saturday morning. That's interesting. I mean, so it's, 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 go on. I, I was just going to say, it's not like it would be inappropriate for Saturday morning. It's not. No, no. I mean, by the stats, see, this is the thing that's always been interesting about our TV versus your TV back in the day, not so much anymore. Uh, shows that I was quite surprised to find heard on US television in eight, nine o'clock time slots over here were considered family viewing. So like Erwolf, Knight Rider, A-Team, this, the fall guy, all heard seven o'clock in the evening or six, six o'clock on Saturday in the family time slot. Okay. Yeah, well, there's only there's only the equalizer, I think, that maintained an after nine o'clock time slot. And that's quite understandable if you've watched the equalizer. True. Yeah. But if you look at those shows like The Fall Guy, The A-Team, any of those, no, even Airwolf, you don't see anyone getting shot. You don't see a dead body. You just, I mean, Airwolf, you, okay, that, that blew up. You can infer that the people in it blew up. Fine. But it's not like you would have squibs going off everywhere when someone got shot. It's it was still bloodless death, wasn't it? Right. So I can see where it would be fam. I mean, I watched these shows as a kid. They, this was some of the stuff that I, real, you know, young kid, I would be watching it. My sister, who is three years younger than me, would be sitting right next to me watching this stuff. Well, that was that was it. There was nothing in any of these that kids couldn't be sat at the side of watching with their parents. I mean, there are certain, certainly something like Erwolf was, was skewed slightly older, but if the plot's got a bit too adult and boring for you, you knew Stringfellow Art was going to blow something up at the end of the episode, so that was worth staying in charge of. The only other ones, really, that maintained um, an, a post-Watershed time slot as well as Magnum. Magnum was very popular, and throughout its entire eight-season run, held on to a prime time slot. Mm. And that's another show I I dearly love. It's Magnum, but I didn't find that until later. Because mm. USA, the USA Network would pick up blocks of shows in syndication and just run them. Uh, Magnum was one. MacGyver was another one. I found them on USA in reruns, and they the shows were long over by the time I had found them. But I still uh, love them. Yeah, I say I was watching them all in first run because I'm older than you. <laughs> Not by much. No, no, not really. <laughs> now, another thing about the Fall Guy uh, that is actually quite famous is the opening theme. Hey! <laughs> because it is actually performed, I will not say sung, I will say performed, <laughs> by Lee Majors himself. 
Yes, yes, by leave. See, the thing with the Fall Guy as well, it's, it's, I think it may be the first. I could be wrong. You may know better than I. It's one of the, certainly one of the first shows that blurred that line between fantasy and fiction. Because from the very opening lines of every single episode, well, I'm not the kind to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with Farrah. And that's not that Colt Seavers has been seen with Farrah. That's relying on the audience knowing that the actor portraying Colt Seavers was married to Farrah Farset. And that carries on throughout the entire show. The amount of favours Majors pulled in to have celebrity cameos in is is quite remarkable for a show of this vintage. Oh, yeah. I I know that the only other show in my mind that had this many celebrity cameos was the Adam West Batman series. Mm. And in there... The, they were playing characters. They were, right. They were, or oh, they apart were, from the window thing. Yeah, yeah. The, but even then, you know, it was... Uh, you would have, like, Ted Cassidy was on, but he was Lurch. Or yeah. you'd have... I can't remember the actor's name, but uh, Jose Jimenez was on. You know, so that was just a, a bit thing. But still, it was like, you know, and special guest villain, you had the, the guest star. Here, they're actually playing themselves to yeah, the point he, he name drops in the the opening song he name drops clint eastwood burt reynolds jacqueline smith bo derrick who else is in the uh cheryl teagues raquel cheryl, welch cheryl teagues, yeah robert raquel redford <laughs> yep so in the opening title alone he name drops a lot of real people and even to the point where i watched an episode the other night uh it was one of the first season episodes that had Denise Crosby, uh, not Denise Crosby, uh, Kathy Lee Crosby. I'm getting my Crosbys mixed up. <laughs> Wonder Woman. Uh, the it, woman that would be Wonder Woman. Yes. <laughs> but that, she used to host a show called That's Incredible. And that was the show that Colt Seavers was on. And doing a stunt that, as usual, was picked up later in, in the show. But... You got a lot of that. You got a lot of that crossover of a real-life setup with real-life people doing what they would normally do with this fictional Lee Majors character joining them. And it was it was almost like looking at another universe. You know, it was a parallel universe where Lee Majors didn't exist, but Colt Seavers did. Everything else was the same. But the, the opening credits rely on you equating Lee Majors with Colt Seavers. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's metafiction on a level that would make Grant Morrison's eyes bleed. <laughs> but it's... I don't know what it is. Every single one of these episodes, now that I'm rewatching them as an adult, I haven't seen the show in 20 years, probably. Maybe longer. But now I'm rewatching them, I still... Every episode is fun it's you can have little bits oh how are they going to get out of this or oh they're going to be killed but overall the episodes are fun and i actually miss that for every show that i watch now except the flash the librarians haven't I'd seen put librarians. that in there as well the librarians is a th is in the same way that leverage was a throwback to 80s and 90s tv the librarians is very much like this okay yes there's drama and threat but there's a there's a level of fun and humor to it as well that was present in all the stuff that we grew up watching that's good and uh, why when, when i say it's an episodic television show it is there is no character development in here 
at all. No, no, you can pretty much watch an episode from the first season and an episode from the fifth season. And other the fact that the person who gives him his gigs is different. It's it's exactly the same show five years later. Apart from Lee Majors, he's starting to look a little bit long in the tooth by the time we get to the end of it. Well, even in the even in the beginning, in in the first season, they actually play up the fact that he's not a young man. Yeah, he's, he's thickened a lot since Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, he's not fat by any stretch of the imagination, no. but he's not the the sleek can run across a field dodging explosions guy that he was when he was doing six mil. He's, he's thickened a bit. He's, he's put on a bit of years. And it actually suits the show, because the whole point of the show is he's getting on a bit to be doing what he's doing. Yeah, like he'll, it, he'll do a, a stunt and hurt himself. And yeah, that... and it's a shame they didn't follow through that over the five years. Because other than the first season, where you kind of make a big deal of it, by the time he gets to the fifth season, he's still doing all these ridiculous things. Yeah, but that would... TV shows didn't do that back then. No, you, you no, didn't, they didn't. You didn't have a season or series-long story arc. That would be much, much later. But even so, it, it was it was nice to see them acknowledge, no, he's not the $6 million man. No, he is not the young cowboy from the Big Valley. He is getting, he is in middle age. He's acting like he's in middle age. To the point where he tries to avoid fights. Yes, that was always the funny bit that he would be like, no, no, let's let's talk this out of it. That was one of the things I I like about Lee Majors. I like, and I think that's why he's had such um such career longevity. Is that he's he's not tried to pretend he's still twenty five when he's doing this show. He's acknowledged as his career's gone on that he's getting older. And I think another reason for his longevity is he's just thrown himself into TV show after TV show. So he's not really let himself hang around long enough to get typecast. Even though now he is primarily remembered for the Six Million Dollar Man. Back then, it was, right, well, okay, he's the fall guy now. And for a generation like you, he's the fall guy, not Six Million Dollar Man. And then after this, he did, um, God, that Vietnam thing. I can't remember what it was called. Oh. He did a Vietnam series after the Fall Guy, and then after the Fall, he did another one. So he's and before Six Million, he did Big Valley. So he's just gone from series to series to series, and that's kept him in the public eye for the most part. He was just in Dallas. Yeah, and he's he's done cameo roles in a bunch of stuff too. I mean, uh, he was in uh, most famously in Scrooge. Yes, he was brilliant in Scrooge. Yeah, it was hilarious seeing him him show up at North Pole and give Santa a machine gun. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. That was great stuff. But yeah, so the opening titles set up the show. Can you think now, can you imagine nowadays having a show that has a three-minute opening credit sequence? No, not at all. Not in the slightest. But every week you've got Lee Majors crooning about being the unknown stuntman. So it's like, it's one of those things that we've discussed before when we've done TV show episodes, TV show theme show episodes. This was a remarkable medium to get your, your song onto. It was in people's houses every single week. Yeah, and what's nice is when you had a theme like this, being an episodic show, not everyone watched every episode. So if you had someone come in for episode 10 of the third season never seen the show before they listen to the theme song and say oh okay i get it he's a stuntman there you go yeah he's a stuntman and then they work in the bounty hunter thing and you're fine now one thing i had mentioned to you when we first decided to, to do about this is when i was want re-watching these i got the impression and tell me if you think i'm completely off base here but 
Colt Seavers is the Peter Parker of bounty hunters. Yeah, nothing ever seems to go right for him. Right. Or, like, he'll, in the one episode I watched, he got through everything, did, you know, had all these troubles getting the people back in jail and, and all this, and it turns out that, you know, this one loves that one, and so he takes his bounty and pays for them to get married. So he just went through all that to get this money, and it's like, oh, fine, here. Yeah, he was always far too generous with his money. Yeah, which is why he needed to do bounty hunting on which the side. Which is why he needed to do bounty hunting, yeah, he was far too nice. Because one would imagine being the organizer of your own stunt team doesn't pay badly. Yeah, you would think, and every every celebrity that would come on, it's, oh, cold, I remember when we worked on this movie. Well, if he's had this whole track record, how is he ever out of work? Well, he's not, though, is he? That's the point. Every right. episode opens with him doing a stunt on a picture somewhere. So he's never unemployed. He's always doing something. I always got the feeling he was just an action junkie. Probably, yeah. If he wasn't doing anything, he was bored. But just kind of like Lee Majors himself, really, if you, if you yeah, look at it. Essentially. If he's not acting, he's bored. <laughs> Yeah, if he's not doing something, he's he's a little bit bored. So that's how it. But it is there was um there was an element of characterization to it that wasn't present in Six Million Dollar Man, which is one of those things when you're watching them back now that Six Million Dollar Man can frequently be a little bit po faced mm. and very very serious. And there's very little humor in Six Million Dollar Man until the Bionic Woman shows up, and she's the one who starts using her thumbnail to open up cans of tuna and stuff. <laughs> so she's the one who starts to bring humor into it. I mean, Lee, sorry, Lee, Steve did stuff like that, but there was never that element of humor to it that the Bionic Woman brought into it. Whereas in Cult Seavers, there was a lot. It was tongue in cheek an awful lot of the time. This is one of the things that it, I think they probably could reboot today as a comedy and it would work because the original show wasn't taking itself too seriously. Yeah, this this will be one I would not mind as opposed to every other adaptation of a show that I liked as a kid that becomes a big screen comedy that I can't stand. Yeah, like Starsky and Hutch, which was an abomination. And Land of the Lost. And, and 21 Jump it. Street. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the Fall Guy would work as an action comedy. It would. It's it's that now. You would have, half the time, you would have Lee Majors almost literally winking at the camera. He would do yeah. a, he would just, he wouldn't do a sides you know, speaking to the audience directly, but he would just, he would, like, look around and then look at the camera like, did you see that? Yeah, he would he would do Tom Selleck break the fourth wall things, wouldn't he, every yeah. now and again, to, like, acknowledge that, yeah, this is this is a little bit odd. I mean, as, as in true Glenn A. Larson fashion, what he did here was essentially take the idea from a couple of different movies, graph them together and turn it into a TV show. So before this, there was Hooper with Burt Reynolds. You ever see that? I have, yes. Hooper's yeah. a great film. Great Adam movie. West's in it. So he's an over-the-hill stuntman in Hooper. And there was the stuntman with John Voight. That one I have not seen. There was um there was a bounty hunter flick that the name of which is escaping me at the minute. It was probably called The Bounty Hunter. Um, <laughs> and basically what he did was just graft the two of them on together. Because as he's pointed out, as he pointed out in one of the special features somewhere, bounty hunting was something that was largely unexplored on television at that point. Everyone was a cop. Everyone was a detective. Everyone was a lawyer. But there hadn't been many shows about being a bounty hunter, which has now changed. There are a few shows about being a bounty hunter now. But back then, The Fall Guy was one of the few ones that was doing that was about somebody who was a bounty hunter. He wasn't really a cop. 
he was basically just tasked with bringing this guy in. And it always seemed to me, as somebody who wasn't American, that he had a great deal of leeway to do his job. <laughs> it didn't seem like he operated on any kind of jurisdictional boundaries. It didn't seem like he really had to follow the letter of the law as long as he didn't outright break it. As long as he brought that guy back, it, anything was fair game. And he could go anywhere and do anything. Mm. And it didn't matter. Well, that's actually not that far off. Oh, right, okay. Because <laughs> bounty hunters are, the the whole point of them is the cops are busy, the cops are limited by jurisdiction, you're not, go get him. So you can have a, an actual real-life bounty hunter go from one end of the country to the other one to get somebody and bring them back. And that's why they're paid so well, because they have all these expenses and everything, to get the person. Now, they can't, they can't go quite so far as to bend the law to almost the breaking point because the local cops don't like that. No, he, he frequently did run afoul of the local sheriffs. Right. But that was another American TV trope of the time. Local sheriffs were always corrupt. <laughs> Every or, single one of them. Or actually, in the one I just watched the other day... It was the local sheriff was actually willing to help him. He was willing to get Colt and the fugitive back from it was they were in Las Vegas back to Los Angeles. But the fugitive was so, the the whole character was this guy is so abrasive that everyone wants to punch him in the face, even Mother Teresa. So he's Charles Grodin from Midnight Run. Yeah. So like as soon as Colt gets this deal with the sheriffs, like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll escort you the, back to the county line, etc., etc., because this mobster's trying to kill the guy, then this guy turns around and says, no, you can't do that, all cops are corrupt! Like, oh, screw you, get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> so, it, even if he had the help of a sheriff at some point, they kind of switched it around on him later on. Yeah, it always did seem to me like the law in America was not to be trusted. And all of that spun out of these kinds of shows. Michael Knight was forever being hounded by local sheriffs. <laughs> the A-team never met a sheriff that wasn't corrupt. And the Dukes of Hazard were constantly dealing with Boss Hogg. Yeah, well, that's, that's actually a very good segue, because as the Dukes of Hazard always, when I was a kid, always wanted me to... I wanted to get a CB radio, which my dad didn't like because my dad was a... He drove 18-wheelers, and he hated the CB radio. <laughs> this show made me want to get a GMC pickup truck with a hidden compartment mm -hmm. because I love the truck. This is one of those iconic vehicles like Kit, like Airwolf, like Streethawk, like the Starsky and Hutch car that you just look at and say, like, ah, fall guy, gotcha. And it was... It was interesting because this truck, not only could it do stunts where it would do jumps and lands where you would think it would break its axle and be fine, but it could it also... It frequently did break its yeah. axle. But it could also outrun sports cars. Yeah. But it it was it was a cool looking truck. If it, anyone that's listening to this, take a minute, Google Fall Guy pickup truck and take a look what I'm talking about. But it is a raised up pickup that... And, and I'm not kidding, it actually had a secret compartment between the cab and the bed of the truck 
where they would frequently keep, like, shotguns and stuff for, you know... For his bouncing purposes. Yes. The interesting thing about the truck, and, I mean, they must have had more than one, obviously, because the amount of stunts that they did with it, they, they must have frequently wrecked it. Oh, yeah. But the pilot episode, it doesn't have the, um, the Stuntman logo on the bonnet. No, no, because I think the pilot episode like with with most pilots, was shot ahead of time for the network to say, yeah, we want this or not. And then when they got to series, it's like, you know, we need to customize this a little bit more. Yeah, so you could always tell when they nicked footage from the pilot. Right. (laughs) Because they didn't have the the nice eagle logo, the Fall Guy Stuntman Association logo on the bonnet, which was, uh, I love that logo. I used to sketch that logo as a kid in my school book because he had it on the back of his uh, his blue um, satin jacket as well, didn't he? And he had it on his baseball cap. Yeah, and they would, even any of the equipment that they would use, they would have the logo somewhere. Like, Jody would have it, she would have a jacket or something that had on it. And it may, I don't think it was across the whole back. I think she had, like, a patch on, on the, the chest or something. Yeah, she had a little past on, uh, patch on the, on the lapel kind of thing. Yeah, she had a different kind of jacket. But let's be honest, Heather Thomas was only there for eye candy. In the pilot yeah. episode, she, had, she actually has quite a substantial role, and she's obviously Colt's protege. The relationship between the two of them was never clearly defined. And there was always that, so are they a couple? Or aren't they a couple? Uh, as it went on, they were clearly just friends. Uh, and it's a shame, really, because in the pilot, she's really good. She's very definitely learning the rope. She's very definitely cult the next generation. And then later on, she just kind of gets, she just shunted to the side to become the eye candy, which is a shame. Yeah, it is a shame, because she, she did have a, a decent personality. The character, was, she was snarky. And yeah. they needed that on the show because Colt was too easygoing, Howie was too eager. So you needed somebody there to say, you know, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, they needed somebody to point out that what they were doing was patently ridiculous. Yeah, Howie, like you say, was just naive. And a lot of the humor with him derived from the fact that he thought he was much better at everything than he actually was. And Colt was forever bailing him out of trouble. And that that was something that was... Interesting, because obviously, I mean, I, like I said in the, the intro, they're cousins. But there gets a point where even my cousins, you keep doing this this kind of stuff, I'm not going to be helping you anymore. Well, isn't, isn't it in, implied in the pilot as well that Colt's been paying for his education? Which yes. may explain where some of his money's been going. Yeah, and that's because how he keeps jumping around. Diff- not only did he change majors, he changed schools frequently. So that means you would have to start all over in, you know, if you go from pre-med to poetry from one school to another, none of those credits are carrying over. Yeah. So it was always, there was always that like Dukes of Hazard thing as well. Is well, why is Colt paying for his cousin's education? Yeah. It's, I guess it was just a, we can't have them be brothers for whatever why? reason. Yeah. I, I don't understand that. I, it would make more sense if yeah. Howie was his younger brother. That yeah, would like explain a everything. Relate a different marriage or whatever, yeah. yeah, and that would explain why he puts up with him as much as he did. Because it was the same with the Dukes. Why couldn't Bo and Luke have been brothers? Why were they all cousins? Because if they're all cousins, then it's in the South, and therefore they have the possibility of going out with Daisy. <laughs> yeah, but they never did. No. So yeah, so how would be the younger brother would have made much more sense. But yeah, the truck, the truck's great. The truck doesn't get recognize as much as like kit or the batmobile or anything like that does it which is a shame this show does have one of my all-time favorite car stunts it really does there's it's in the opening credits 
So you can see it every. I think it's in the opening credits from season two anyway, because I think it was a first season episode. They're on a bend, and a Porsche is coming around the bend, and the truck is coming from behind off road, off a dirt track, and the truck jumps over the Porsche as it turns the bend and lands in front of the Porsche. I mean, it busts the truck up fine, but the amount of effort and planning that must have gone into that one stunt is phenomenal because you've got to have the Porsche coming around the corner at exactly the same time, at exactly the same speed, for the truck to be coming in a different direction to jump over the Porsche Mm -hmm. and clear it. And that's an absolutely fantastic stunt in that it looks brilliant. But when you think about the amount of planning that that took for a weekly TV show, that's a great stunt. I love that one. That's one of my favorite car stunts on a television show. But The Fall Guy was full of great stunts like that with the truck. Oh, yeah. And it was just such a a nice set piece to have is that truck because you you could have a stunt driver doing it. And it's not like if he changed cars every time, it would be like, okay, well, who's driving? No, this is his truck. It's either him or Howie doing it, usually. Hmm. But you always know Michael Knight is driving Kit. You always know Colt Seavers is driving this truck. And the truck got beat to hell, no doubt about oh, it. Yeah. So I they... mean, there's any number of clips that you can use. That stunt I've just been talking about, if you Google that on YouTube, it quite clearly snaps the, the front axle in half when it lands. But then you've got the brilliant comedy cut that you always got in Dukes of Hazard, where we cut to an external shot and everything's fine again. Right. Well, no one was paying that close attention. <laughs> no, it wasn't designed to be rewound in HD and, and all that stuff, was it? But no. there's, there's, there's tons of great truck stunts in the car. There's a brilliant one in Vegas, I think, at night. Where the, the, What's different about it is the, the truck leaps, and instead of landing on its front wheels, it goes back heavy, which I don't understand how that happened, because the weight of the engine is what normal normally brings the car down, which is why Kit and the General Lee would always like plummet nose first. But in this one, the truck lands on its back wheels and it completely destroys the back of the truck <laughs> to the point where the, the flap at the back that they would open and shut to put stuff in flies off into the night. <laughs> That's a great one as well. The only thing I can think of for that to happen is they must have weighted down the back of the truck, and they weighted it down too much. Yeah, that's. I mean, when my dad had pickup trucks when we were growing up, most of the time in the winter, he would put cinder blocks in the back, because that way, if the roads were slick, he would get traction from the back wheels. Right. So all I can think of is they did something like that. They put a weight in the back so that they wanted it to land rear wheels first for whatever reason. And yeah, just... maybe it's safer for the driver. I would assume it would be safer for the driver because you don't get that huge jolt that you would yeah, normally get. I've watched a lot of the behind the scenes because the stunt work in, in Dukes is probably some of the best on television. And they've basically said that the problem with the jump in a charger was the weight of the engine. So you had to weight out the back so there was even distribution. But he said what, what happens is even with the weight distribution, if you're landing nose first on that front axle or if you're lucky the front wheels, your body's still being screwed like when you grab hold of a Coke can and twist it. Mm-hmm. So you've really got to have a back support. You've really got to make sure that the roll cage that they put to support the roof is proper. Otherwise, you're getting out of that car with permanent spine damage. Right. So presumably, if you're landing it on the back, that's at least doing you more of a favor. Although I would imagine the whiplash effect is probably still quite bad. Oh, this, yeah. But the thing, the thing with this as well, though, one of the things that we, these shows that we grew up with, the stunts are all practical. 
I and mean, then... other than the fact, yeah, other than Knight Rider and Dukes and this on occasion turn into models, which always pissed me off because mm. you could always tell when they move to models. The majority of the stunt work is all practical effects. Yeah, and that's something that I love. I love the fact that, yeah, okay, I understand the Dukes jumping over a, a lake that they built a, two ramps, one on either side, so that the car can actually do it, but the car actually did it. Yeah. It, you can look at it and say, that is real. That is a real person doing it in a real vehicle, and it's just amazing. You Even with the advances in CG and model making and everything, nothing can replace a car being jumped in reality. Or even just a regular car chase. Nothing can actually replace it being a proper car chase. Right. I mean, just look at Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah, there's there's nothing more convincing than it actually being real people doing the stunt work. And even though you can look at it and go, they just trash that car. Every time they jump the General Lee, they wrote off another 1969 Dodge <laughs> Charger. But it was a real man doing a real stunt in a real situation, and that's why it still holds up properly. And certainly, at least with the Charger and, and with the truck, they look sturdy enough that they could at least take this level of abuse. Kit never did. No. That Pontiac Trans Am disintegrated whenever it landed. Whereas, yeah, the truck and the Charger look like they could take some level of abuse. And speaking, you know, another brilliant segue, as far as real people doing real stunts, that's another thing I loved about this show because, to me, I'm I'm a behind-the-scenes junkie. I love watching all the extra stuff on DVDs, to, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> and this show, I think, had a lot to do with it because I got to see what I thought was a behind-the-scenes look. Because every time you would have a real stunt being performed by real stuntmen, and for no other reason than, here's a stunt. You know, it, it wasn't part of the, the plot or anything like that. It was Colt Seavers or Jody jumping off of a... 10-story building into an airbag. That's great. I'd never yeah. seen how they actually did these stunts before in movies. No, it, it was fascinating to watch stuff like that. When they would do like behind-the-scenes stuff on kids' TV shows, like there was a one called Clapperboard, which is behind-the-scenes on movies and stuff, and they would occasionally do TV shows like this, and they'd show you the setting up of the cars and the jumping and how much planning and effort goes into it, and how much maths these guy needs to know. How much oh, maths yeah. and physics these people need to know to be able to coordinate these. It's brilliant stuff. Absolutely brilliant. And it's it glorifies stuntmen. Because I, I think yeah. up to this point, not everyone appreciated what stuntmen had to go through to give you the movies and the TV shows that everyone enjoyed. Well, Lee, Lee Majors was always a big fan of the stunt guys. He was best friends on Six Million Dollar Man, not with the other actors. He was best friends with Vince Dedrick Jr., who was his stuntman on six mil and so essentially this was his chance to throw the spotlight open to those guys because he knew the level of work they went into majors mm -hmm. is apparently one of those guys who went out for drinks after work with the crew he didn't hang around with other actors apart from people like richard burton so majors can apparently knock back the beer if he's hanging around with richard burton <laughs> well i think everyone could when they're hanging around with richard burton <laughs> And he must have been mate to Richard Burton, because he got him on the show. Burton never did television. Yeah. Yeah, there was... Actually, I was watching, and I think it was from 2012 or something, they they had an interview on Turner Classic Movies with Peter O'Toole, and they, he was talking about doing Beckett, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Second, 
only to the Lion in Winter for Peter O'Toole in my mind. But he apparently O'Toole and Burton had an agreement because two of their mentors were also in the cast. They had an agreement, work days, we do not touch a drop of alcohol. Which, for the two of them, was actually pretty in- interesting. <laughs> That's quite impressive. Yeah. And they stuck to it through the whole thing because, like O'Toole said, you can't show up to work completely blitzed when you have this guy who you idolized and who has taught you on the set looking at your performance. So, yeah, I can I can see Majors going out with Burton for a drink or two. Yeah, I got because Ken Johnson said on many a commentary, Lee was a really nice guy and he was really easy to get on with, but he wasn't squeaky clean. Yeah. Although, on the special features for Six Million Dollar Man, Lee's talked about, he went out drinking with Andre the Giant, who played Bigfoot, and oh. Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant would have a six-pack before breakfast. And Major said what he would do is he would snap one off, pop the ring pull, knock it back. Next one, pop the ring pull, knock it back. And he did that with six of them before breakfast. Well, he he was a... Andre the Giant was a famous drinker. Just see any of the stories Carrie always tells about filming The Princess Bride. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was probably a good set to be on. I, w- I would think so. I mean, anyone that is a star, and l- at this point, Lee Majors was a certified star mm-hmm. that decides, I want to hang around with the people that actually put the show together. Uh, I mean, that just raises him, in my opinion. Yeah. Because he knew where he came from. You know, he knew, he- yes, he's standing in front of the camera, he's giving the lines, but these are the people that are responsible to make it happen. And he appreciates that, and that's terrific. Yeah, he's uh, he's a good. He seems like a really a, quite a decent guy in terms of the credit that he gives to other people. Yeah, I I like to try and meet him at some point, but I don't think he does any appearances, does he? Oh, he's just started doing lots of convention appearances, and my understanding is he's going to be at a Birmingham Comic Con in uh, which isn't that far away from me, and I'm very tempted to go and meet him. Yeah, I mean, if he was in this area, though. Because I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I think that I am, I get nervous when I go up to talk to people, uh, especially celebrities. So I tend to make excuses for myself. Nah, I don't want to go do this. I do make exceptions for like um, William Shatner, who I met him. I met both him and Nimoy and Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray. I met both of them. Gil Gerard's very nice guy. Right. In fact, I have an autographed copy of the Buck Rogers pilot directly from Gil Gerard. This is before they had come out on DVD. He was selling the pilots that he had burned himself. Is he allowed to do that? Uh, I didn't care at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And as long as he had the money, he probably didn't either. (laughs) Yeah, really. So, but Lee Major, he seems, excuse me, he seems like one of those guys that if I had the opportunity, I would not make excuses. I'd go up because be- between the $6 million man and the fall guy, he is one of the elite of TV. And you-, you say Lee Majors, people know exactly who you're talking about. Mm. Uh, not if you go to Wikipedia, because there's apparently a Lee Major that they say not to be confused with. <laughs> not to be confused with the actor. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. So, well, is... I. I'm going to look. I don't even know if this is... Is this out on a DVD set, like, for all the... No, the first two seasons have been released. 
they've not released it as like a big old box set like they have with Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah. So the whole thing isn't out, but it's it, I think it's probably worthy of a big old big old box set. It doesn't seem to be. And May just thinks this is his favorite role. He thinks that that Colt Seavers he preferred doing the Fall Guy to Six Million Dollar Man because oh, he found he, Colt Seavers was closer to him and there was more humor in it. And he seemed like he I mean he seems like one of those guys who's genuinely friendly with everyone he's worked with because you, you go a long way to find people who've got a bad word to say about him even um ryan o'neill and ryan o'neill stole farrah from him <laughs> and even ryan o'neill doesn't say bad things about lee majors but it's it's interesting with the fall guy that it doesn't seem to have entered into the public consciousness the same way the six million dollar man has people remember it but they don't remember it in that same way it doesn't get repeated as much no, I don't, I, I don't remember seeing it on TV for a good long time. I mean, Six Million Dollar Man will show up every now and again, but I don't, except for, like, way back, like I said, with USA and TBS and anyone that was picking up all these old shows to, to re, recirculate, I don't remember seeing it. I mean, I, I came across it on Hulu. They have the first season on Hulu, and... That's what got me to thinking, oh, I want to do a show on this, because I remember that. It was great. You know, and you know, when I think Lee Majors, I obviously go right to you. <laughs> of course. Not John S. Drew. Well, that would be interesting, but I've actually spoken to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he does a cyborg to bionic podcast, so you yeah. think you would go to that guy. Yeah. But okay, I can live with that. Yeah, I don't mind being a big fan. I don't mind. Lee Majors seems like a fun guy. Yeah, he does. And that's Part of, I think, why he likes this, because he looked like he was having a ball when he was making this show. But he says he still is the one who ended it. He said after the fifth season, they wanted a sixth season. But his contract was up and he just had enough at that point. He just wanted to have some time off. Because if you think about it, he did however many years he did a big valley. He then went straight into five years of the Six Million Dollar Man. This wasn't that long after Six Mill. Six Mill finished in 79. They started in 81, did you say? Yes. So that's only two years. And so then he did five years of this. So he's done pretty much, what, 15 years there of solid TV work. Yeah. And he just wanted a break. And if you look at the Six Mill reunion movies, which were back end of the 80s and into the early 90s, he has kind of let himself go a bit. He's lost weight since then. He actually looks better now than he did in a couple of those Six Mill reunion movies. But he obviously decided after 15 years of TV working, he wanted a break and he just let himself go and didn't do any exercise. Can't blame Which him. Which is fair enough. No, I don't blame him at all. 15 years of solid doing stuff like this. And if you actually look at Six Mill, he does an awful lot of that running himself. Well, he had to. Yeah. There are times you can spot it's Vince Dedrick, but there's an awful lot of it that's him full on in the shot. And he talks in the special feats about him. One of them, he's running across a minefield. So he's avoiding the explosions, and he did it three times. And the director said, can we do it again? And Lee just looked at him and said, no. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the one who's running across that field avoiding explosions. Have you got what you need? Well, yeah, but we're not doing it again. Tell you what, you run across there with the explosions, show me exactly (laughs) what you want, then I'll do it again. (laughs) And then I'll do it exactly as you want me to do it. That would work perfectly, I think. Yeah, I'd, like we said earlier, there's a lot of guest stars in this. Pulls in a lot of the pilot alone has James Coburn and Farrah Fawcett in it. Right. Which goes to what we were saying earlier on. The the conversation at the end with Lee and Farrah is that between Lee and Farrah or is that between Colt and Farrah? Blur in the lines. <laughs> yeah, it's there's so much of that goes on in this. And there's an episode where they go to Hawaii. 
and they bump into Tom Selleck in his Ferrari. They don't bump into Tom as Magnum. Mm. They bump into Tom Selleck. So there's that whole blurring of fantasy reality that went through the entire show. So in Fall Guy universe, who starred in the Six Million Dollar Man? That's a good question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you, fan- you fan fiction writers, get on that. <laughs> yeah, in the Fall Guy, who starred in Six Mill? Because presumably Colt Seavers will have been Steve Austin's body double. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, have you ever seen The Last Action Hero? I have seen The Last Action Hero. Where yeah. they're going through the video store in the, the movie universe and they go past the Terminator starring Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> so the $6 million man starred David Hasselhoff then. That would, that would be an interesting mashup to see how that would actually work. I think Hasselhoff may have been a bit young in 1974. Yeah, he wouldn't have been a colonel in the Air Force, that's for sure. No, no that, that's true. But yeah, <laughs> we've mentioned Richard Burton, um, James Corburn, uh, Jonathan Frakes was in one. Yeah, very young Jonathan Frakes. Very young Jonathan Frakes. But if you think about it, if this show ran from 81 to 86, that's only a year before Next Gen started. True, yeah. It's quite, it's quite upsetting to think of all these things that we enjoyed oh, are all now 30-odd years old. Ugh. <sighs> That's depressing, isn't it? It is quite depressing, yeah. And he pulled in, Richard Anderson was in a Fall Guy, so he pulled in Richard Anderson from Six Mill. Lindsay Wagner was in one. Well, of course. So he, so he pulled her in from from, uh, from Six Mill. I'm pretty sure Barbara Stanwyck from Big Valley, I'm sure he pulled her in for one. She had to be in there, yeah. So I'm assuming she was in a Fall Guy at some point. But there was an awful lot of big movie stars in it that you wouldn't normally see on, uh, on television. And... That's something that back then it was it was kind of not it was frowned upon I should say it was mm-hmm. frowned upon for once you got into movies you did not go back to TV it was same with directors if you you had a TV director that went to movies it they were kind of shunned if they had to go if they had to go back to TV to make money yeah it was it was one of those there was TV actors and there was film actors the only guy who really straddled the two successfully was James Garner yeah. And, but um, James Garner could do basically anything. Yeah, well, James Garner was James Garner. And yeah. James Garner was, was eminently watchable in anything he did. Uh, the, you know, the other famous guest star, Cassandra Peterson, did a couple of Elvira. Oh, of course. In the 70s and 80s, she get, she cameoed in, I think, everything. And she just recently had a birthday. She is actually one year younger than my father. Wow. And, and holy crap, does she look good. <laughs> Even out yeah. of the makeup, she looks good. <laughs> So it was quite impressive. I think she did two Fall Guys. I'm sure she did two episodes of the Fall Guy because she had such a good time doing it. Apparently Roy Rogers was on a Fall Guy too. Oh, they did an episode. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was called My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys. Mm Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Where they rolled, they did a Back to the Future. They rolled in everyone who'd ever been a cowboy guy on one of those Western TV shows. Oh, wait. I I remember that. Yes. Yeah. He did one where he roped in all of those guys and did a cowboy episode. Wow. But again, The Fall Guy was a cowboy show anyway. Oh, it was. For the most part. I mean, you, you replace the truck with a horse, and it's exactly a, a cowboy episode. Especially, even down to the bounty hunter bit. Yeah. You, I mean, you could picture, like, Colt, look at the name, Colt Seavers. You don't get much more yeah, of a cowboy name than that. No, that's a cowboy name. And the guy, the people who would, um, the people who would send him on his bounties, the first season was Joanne Flug. Right. But then, of course, it was the one that everyone remembers, which was Marky Post. Yeah, first time I ever remember seeing Marky Post. And 
the one I mean Heather Thomas in from like season two on you would see her in a bikini in every opening credit shot mm. but there was one episode of where Marky Post actually got in a bikini because it was the 80s well because it was the 80s and it was friggin Marky Post <laughs> oh yeah Mark, Marky posted a couple of episodes of Fall Guy of a team as well and in one of them they had a player none <laughs> they're like what what are you doing but in the other one they made up for it okay <laughs> it's it's always interesting going back and seeing people you know from something else before like jonathan frakes before you knew him as commander Riker, or on night court there was one episode where nana visitor was on it and she played a complete and utter psycho that i know this is going to be hard to believe but seduced dan uh i can't believe she could pull that off yeah it's uh, hard to do hard to do <laughs> But once she got him alone, she went full on Sybil and pulled out a knife and everything. And that oh, yeah. it, it was a hilarious episode. But the same, also Night Court was uh, Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner. And yeah, that Brent was, you, you look at Data and you look at his appearance on Night Court and you see the range that the man has. Because mm-hmm. if you weren't told, hey, that's Brent Spiner, you would not be able to tell. It's just completely other character. But that has absolutely nothing to do with Fall Guy. <laughs> no, no, but something that does, don't think Lou Ferrigno was in a number of these. Mm. And in one particular one, Colt's playing opposite the Hulk. The opening stunt of the episode is Colt being thrown around the room by the Incredible Hulk. You know, that might have been the trigger that got me to watch it this in the first place, because I am a huge fan of the Incredible Hulk. That was, the I mean, beyond cartoons even before Christopher Reeve, that was the first show that I watched that was a superhero show, live-action superhero show. So anything that had the Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, or Bill Bixby on it, I wanted to watch. So that must have been the first episode of The Fall Guy I saw. My, most likely, my mom or my dad was going through the TV guys, like, oh, Lou Ferrigno is going to be on this episode. We better watch that, or we'll hear about yeah. it later. <laughs> Well, he also played the whole kind of episode of Amazing Stories, didn't he? Don't remember. I don't remember that. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a one with uh, a remote control that makes people come to life. And I'm 90% certain the Hulk's in it, played by Ferrigno, but I'm 100% certain Dirk Benedict's in it, playing Face Man. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. But, I, you know, it's been a long time, but I'm pretty sure. But, yeah, the, so the, I don't know how they pulled that off, given that the Hulk wasn't even on the air when the Fall Guy was. Uh, probably. It wasn't? I don't think so. Then then they stopped production on the Hulk in 81, but there was still some episodes that aired in 82, because they'd held back. Uh, probably. Yeah, because the last last listed season is 82, but I have no idea. Yeah, it was that, that season, season five only lasted seven episodes. So I think they'd, they'd filmed them long before they actually aired them. Well, it was probably, most likely, I would I would think, it was one of those things where they... The show was out of production, so there was no issues, I don't think. And did they ever did they ever identify him in the Fall Guy episode as the Incredible Hulk, or was he just Lou Ferrigno painted green? Um, is Lou Ferrigno painted green? I don't remember if they actually refer to him as the Hulk. Hmm. I've just sent it, yeah. Okay. So you can put, like, License to Kill was the episode. Hmm. <laughs> ah, Lee Majors and a fake mustache. <laughs> See, this is the thing with this as well. Was he a stuntman or was he an actor? 
because he's doing far more in this scene where Ferrigno's playing the Hulk than a stuntman would do. The stuntman would come on there to be thrown around the room. Right. All that stuff before would be handled by the actor. Unless you had... That was basically the only part, because sometimes you will have stuntmen doing lines if they're only... The only reason to have him there is to get thrown around, and there's no... You know, like, he's the tough, and that's it. See, the only problem with this scene is in the TV show, the Hulk never hit anybody. And in that, he clearly just took a swing at Colt Seavers. Right. I do love that the Hulk knocks him out. <laughs> and Ferrigno <laughs> just walks away. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Ferrigno's like, well, that's the stuntman's job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but even in this, it's not only is it Colt, it's Jody. Yeah, in Jody's the, scene. The, the girl that he was going to beat around. Which, and they just leave the poor guy there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for all you Hulk completists, there is an appearance by the Incredible Hulk in an episode of The Fall Guy. Yeah. License to Kill, Part 1. <laughs> Just look it up on YouTube if you don't want to try and find it anywhere else. I might in- include that link in there, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of links I may be including in the show notes for this one. We'll have to see, but I'm most likely going... I may include this one, because it's, it's a rare instance of you know, before King of Queens, the rare instance of Ferrigno actually speaking on camera. Well, he's in another episode, but it's a crossover with another show that Ferrigno was on at the time called Trauma. And I remember being quite confused by that as a kid because we didn't get Trauma. Oh, okay. So we got the fall guy, but we didn't get the other part of the story. Now, normally in these things, they did film different endings. So like the crossover with Murder, She Wrote, Magnum did. The episode ends, it ends, whereas in the crossover episode, he ends up in jail. Okay. So I don't know what they did with trauma, because I never saw so much as a single episode of trauma. And I don't think that it lasted a particularly long time either. Hmm. I don't remember it, actually. So it, it's like anything else nowadays, you'll be able to find something of it on YouTube. I would have thought so. Yeah. Well, I think we have basically run the topic into the ground, unless you had anything else. <laughs> No, no, we've only got that uh, post-season four Marquee Post left. I don't know whether she left in yeah. the night court. And they were, she was replaced by Nedra Voltz, who was that funny old woman that you saw in everything in the 80s and 1970s. She was the post-mistress in Mark and Mindy. Ah, she, yes. She was the guy, girl, giving um, Colt his jobs in season five. And she alternated with a guy called Robert Donner, who you will recognize as being in everything. In the 70s and 80s, he was a preacher in Alias Smith and Jones. He was a deranged lunatic in The Incredible Hulk. He was in everything. He's that guy. Yeah, Robert Robert Donner was also in Mark and Minda. He was um he was the, the strange preacher man. Gotcha. He would walk around in the big white smock thing. Okay. But everyone remembers Marky Post, and uh, I think that's obvious why everyone remembers Marky Post. Because she was so good in Night Court. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Right. That's, that's exactly it. <laughs> All right, well, why why don't we knock it on the head there, and (laughs) to steal someone's line. And, Andy, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you? I don't know anymore. Akin's Comics has ended. I'm very sad. Um, Listen to The Prophet Still Happens, which is me and Paul Spataro and Sean Engel talking about Deep Space Nine. Some guy emails into that show every single week. I'd be damned if I can remember his name. It's some lunatic. Yeah, yeah, he needs to come on an episode at some point. Yeah, but then you wouldn't have any email to read, and you'd have to read an iTunes review over and over. What we've thought about that is you could read your own email. (laughs) (laughs) If we're talking about, you know, blending, merging fantasy reality, you should come on the show and read your own email. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that would be awesome. Uh, fantastic cast with Steve Lacey. I still do that. We're well into the 70s now, so we're well post Lee and Kirby. And on my Billy Todd, my vanity project, The Palace of Glittering Delights, happens whenever I can be bothered on 2TrueFreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics happens uh, every now and again now. Not a regular thing anymore. Yeah, it's whenever you can drag Michael away from university. Yeah, whenever I get him away from university for 10 minutes. Here's a comic, read it. We're recording 10 minutes. <laughs> You know, he could just wander around the university with, a, with an MP3 recorder, just randomly recording stuff that you just shuttle, you know, shuttle in. It'll be the, uh, like, they have the Dr. Bill LMD on Back to the Bins. He could be the Michael yeah. LMD. You have a Michael LMD, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. I had a great time. I hope you did. No, it was good. That I, I haven't thought about the fall guy in years. It's amazing how much of it comes back to you, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's once once you get into it and you start seeing clips and and everything, it just floods on back. I mean, I I even remember you know before watching it, I, as soon as I heard the music, I remembered the theme lyrics. Well, I'm not to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with Farrah. That one. Yes, that one. And thank you for singing it because I wasn't going to. <laughs> oh, any any excuse. <laughs> All right, everyone, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Hammer Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send an email to gene at thehammerstrikes.com. If you like what you've heard, please visit the Patreon page, which is located at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes, and consider becoming a sponsor of the show. Please be sure to check out The Hammer Strikes on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and YouTube. The Hammer Podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I've never spent much time in school, but I totally it is plenty. It's true, I hire my body out for pay. Hey, hey. I've gotten burned over Cheryl Teague's blown up for Rockin' Welch But when I wind up in the hay, it's on